You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 82 of the Library Bros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is missing. Bob bought a house, and he's in the middle of moving from one house to the other, so he won't be joining us today. But today we are coming to you from the booth at the Sachin Public Library in Holbrook, New York. And the Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. Consider leaving a review or tell someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is Ian Anstis, editor of Public Libraries News. It's an online publication about what's happening in Libraryland UK. So we're going to speak with Ian about libraries in the UK, libraries and publicity, making programming digital along with uh, all the services you know, that they that libraries do that should go digital and about public libraries news, which we're going to call PLN because it's a lot easier and how PLN can actually facilitate some of these things. But first, let's chat with Ian and learn a little bit about about what he is about. So thanks for making the time to speak to us from across the pond. Tell us about your background and what your connection to libraries in general came from. So I'm from Wales, which is a separate nation to England for your American uh, listeners in the UK. Uh, and I grew up in a place called Newport, which is very different to the Newport you have, I think, on Rhode Island, for all sorts of reasons, a bit more industrial for one thing. Um, and uh, I remember going to school and there was a mobile came uh, into the school. I was about... I must have been about six at the time, and it was the most most amazing thing for me. So I I I, I loved that. I, unfortunately, I stole one of their books, which is a bit unfortunate at the age of eight. But um, it's a couple of years afterwards, and I still feel guilty about it. So if anyone from Newport Libraries uh, is listening, I owe you some money. Um, but then went through life as one does, constantly use libraries. I had. Um, Shall we say a challenging childhood? My mother and my brother had lots of mental health issues, which left me on my own quite a lot. So I used a public library uh, as a refuge. Um, a lot read through the entire science fiction section, through their, through most of their history section, and then that saw me through some difficult times. Went off to university did history fascinating subject it's great because you have almost no lessons at all there's almost no studying uh, involved in a history degree in britain it's really recommend it and then did banking for a bit i hated it because apparently banking involved handling money um <laughs> bit, of a, bit of a shock for me that so i obviously hadn't done my research very well and so i then worked tried to work out what I was going to do after that, realised I liked talking to people, liked books, and liked computers, and I thought to myself, hmm, what's a job I can do with all of those free involved? And public libraries came into it. So I started started a career in public libraries from there. So let me ask you this, going off script just a little bit. In the UK, because I know in in other nations where we've spoken to other people, you don't necessarily need a master's to be a librarian. Is that true in the UK, or do you need a master's? 
Well, it's now we get into definitions of what a librarian is, um, which has been known to, known to cause fistfights at conferences. So I, I'm, I'm of a side that says that if you, if you work in libraries, you're a librarian because that's what the public calls you. So you go with, go with what a public calls you. But technically, for, there is a division which is that you need a graduate or postgraduate qualification in librarianship or recognised subject um, in order to take over most posts that you would recognise as being a librarian. So it is quite fam- I think it's quite familiar to, to a lot of other nations, in- including yourselves in that respect. So tell us about PLN and what sparked PLN's creation and what your role is with it. So I, I worked in public libraries since 1994, first as a librarian answering inquiries and reserving books, and then as a manager of branch library that serves around 30,000 people, something like that. And in, in the UK, this was in the far off days of 2010. And in those days, we had the internet, um, but there wasn't many sources of information on what was going in public libraries. There was an author um, still around called Alan Gibbons, who very kindly did a sort of uh, a blog which listed the sort of biggest library news that he was aware of. But it was, it was very much a, a small-scale thing. So before I knew, and I worked in public libraries for gosh, 16, 17 years at that stage. I knew what was going on in my authority very well, but I had only a vague idea, really, of what was happening in neighbouring authorities. And when it came down to the national picture, what was happening in far-off places like Suffolk or London, um, I had literally no idea what was going on. And at the same time, this thing called blogging was taking off in the UK, and everyone's talking about blogging and so on. And so I thought, well, I'll combine the two subjects and I'll start a blog. It was on Blogger at the time. Now it's a WordPress site. And I'll search for library news and just type it into the blog and and learn. And then when someone kindly points out to me a website who is doing it better than me, I can then just stop and I'll follow them instead. So did that, and I've just been checking before, 23rd of October 2010 was my first post. So I'm almost coming up to the decade now. The, and, it's, and so I, I started it basically as a way of learning how to blog and to learn what was going on in public libraries, full stop. I had no intention of being interviewed by yourself ten years later. <laughs> I don't know how much of how, how much of a, a a good thing that is to get interviewed by us, but uh, it seems <laughs> as though you've taken it you've taken it from just being a blog to being something that's that's followed through the UK. Yeah. So it was. It was astounding, actually. I remember being startled then, and I'm still somewhat surprised now, because back in 2010, it was a start of something called austerity in the UK, a new conservative government, which is a right-wing government, anti-public spending in many ways, government had come in under David Cameron, and they were 
looking at cutting public spending. And so my site, just by dint of listing what was going on in for news in the UK for public libraries, was listing all the cuts, all the, all the proposed cuts to public library services. It just happened to be coming in at that time. And it turned out that there wasn't a better website around. There wasn't anyone else collating to a large extent what was going on in public library land. And so when the media um, wanted a source for what was happening, they, they came to me. So national newspapers within three months, I think, were, were quoting my website as wow. a source. And the Houses of Parliament were mentioning it in debates. I mean, I started in October. It was mentioned in the House of Lords debate in January. Yeah, it, the rise of the site was that meteoric, really. Um, it was it was stunning. My first front page on a national newspaper in Britain was uh, was uh, <laughs> was was a surprise. So it, it went from a small scale blog. I, I mean, I remember when I, I was very pleased. I had fifty people that were looking at it each day back in back in the first month or two to now, um, I think it's got about 1,800 weekly subscribers. I do a weekly post now. I used to do it as a daily one. And about 600 to 3,000 views per day. Over the time of lockdown, it was hitting over 3,000 views a day on the website, which for USA, if you times that figure by five or six, you get the, you get the sort of numbers for uh, an American website. So... It, it got big very quickly. It started off as well. I mean, I didn't mean it to be to be this way, but it started off as quite a campaigning website because it was because it was coming in at a time when uh, huge cuts were happening to library services, and I was a librarian. Uh, I naturally wasn't happy about all the cuts happening. So, it, so in, in the early days, it, it came. Uh, it was very much agitation sort of sort of stuff. Get get angry about all the cuts. That's changed radically now. But back in those days, I mean, I remember uh, um, advising for shadow Labour government on libraries policy. I think I was the only non-Labour Party member to be asked at the time uh, what they should do. And that was within a couple of years of setting up the website. And and that, to me, I mean, that, that said a couple of things to me about the state of information about the sector in public libraries. In fact, look, public libraries, information is our profession, isn't it? It is what, it's what we should be doing. But we didn't have any centralised source saying what was going on in our libraries. We just don't. And I've looked around the, looked around the world and doesn't seem to be uh, anything similar to my website anywhere else. And I was basically doing a full day as a librarian, going home, walking the dog, seeing the kids, and then spending two or three hours an evening collating the information which was then used by every library authority in the, in the UK to see what was going on. And I think as, as a professional, that says really bad things about how, how public libraries gain information about themselves because back in 2010 we had no idea what was going on in, in other library services and 
we're a library service. We should have a vague idea of what's going on in our sector, and we didn't. So it, it took using Google, took using all sorts of different sources in order to get, get for site to be something like it is a few years in and definitely now, which is a highly comprehensive site. An example is for uh, a couple of hundred library services in the UK. I've got 10 years history on each one of them. Everything, everything that they've changed in the last decade is on an individual web page or a list on a web page. So if you want to know what's going on in any of those library services, you can. If you want to see um, what changes there have been in libraries in the last 10 years anywhere in the country or nationally, you can because it's, it's on the website. And there's nowhere else like that. I think also in the early days, I said I started off quite agitational, quite political about things. And now I'm, now I'm not so much. So what kind of stories does the PLN publish about libraries and how does the public how does the publication meaning you curate the stories to to see which ones are are worthy to to be, you know, out there as, as opposed to other things where it may be you know, I guess this is like a press question where it would be more like well that's more rumor innuendo versus this is something that happened. Yeah. So if there's no rumor in innuendo, everything which I put on is linked to a website or news source. So I refuse to put in any rumors or anything else. And a good reason for that is I have no money and I don't wish to be sued. Um, <laughs> so quite apart from any professional ethics, really, I want absolutely everything on the website to be backed up. So it has to to come from an official news source. It, it, I don't mind if it's someone's blog, so, so I'm quoting them. That's fine. That's not me at fault, then. That's, that's them for writing it. But over the years, you get to know who's reliable and who's got an axe to grind. Um, in terms of the actual news stories I cover, this effectively means it's, it's mainly physical building stories and budget stories and what promotions and what initiatives libraries are doing. It's very much not a book website. I mean, public public libraries contain books within them and, and reviews and so on, but that's not what I'm about. Other places do that a lot better from what I do. Um, if you want to know if what any library service in the UK's budget is, how many buildings they've got, what they're planning to do in the future, and what promotions they're doing... Um, and if it's newsworthy, I'll put it in. And by newsworthy, I mean something out of the ordinary. If it if it's a coffee morning, that's not going to go in because we do lots of coffee mornings. But if it is something which I think is unusual, or someone reading it will think, "Oh, that's a good idea," then I would definitely put that in. Anything which is best practice, basically, goes in. And also sometimes anything which is worse practice. If something has fundamentally gone wrong in a library service, then I will report on that as well, um, which sometimes doesn't entirely make friends in, in the library world, weirdly. But I think after 10 years or so, I, I think the profession has got used to me uh, for a moment. So it's, I try to be balanced it tries to be it tends to be physical and new news stories not something which i've seen a year ago or 5 years ago it sounds like both you and the profession have developed thick skin with regard to each other especially when it comes to the stuff you're reporting you're reporting that aren't doing 
things the right way? Well, I think for, for councils, which are for your organisations with one libraries in the UK, and library services themselves are only interested in pushing out good news stories. That is all they're interested in, and which is great for them, but it's actually really, really bad for the profession because you never know what's gone wrong. There is, it's like an entire profession which is aimed at avoiding learning opportunities, okay? It will be, if it's, if it's good news, great, that will be publicised. But if it's something which they've done which has gone drastically wrong, suddenly there's no reports about it. No one mentions it at all. So I'm the annoying person that goes, oh, what happened there? to library services and someone in that library service will tell me probably off the record and i can very carefully without wishing to be sued inform for west west of a profession what's what's going on i'm a useful enemy i think to some library services but generally i've i think people appreciate that i'm not going to exaggerate what's going on and, and also, if a library service says, no, what you said there was wrong, I will happily print what they say in reply, and, and then it's up to, up to readers to work out what's actually going on. But the important thing is actually to let people know that something is happening, uh, and it isn't hushed up too much. Well, we have a lot of stuff that we want to talk about with you. So we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be speaking with Ian about libraries in the UK, libraries and publicity, which I think is a very interesting topic. New trends in digitizing just about every library service that libraries do, from programming to providing public information and even makerspaces. Um, and maybe we'll even chat a little bit about COVID-19. So we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back with Ian Anstis, editor of Public Libraries News. So we've been fortunate enough in this podcast to speak to people locally here in New York, both downstate and upstate, across the United States, down in Australia and New Zealand, and now, and even with uh, London Public Library. But one thing that unifies the worldwide library land is what we pretty much do is the same thing no matter where we are. So libraries in the States are organized in many different ways. How are libraries generally organized in the UK? So if you asked me that question when I started in 2010, it would have been really easy. I would have said that all, all library services are run by local councils, which is a tier of the top tier of local government in, in the country. So every single library was run by a council. Then mm-hmm. things got complicated, and they got so. Now I answer that question by saying that there's about four thousand libraries in the UK, plus about six hundred which are won by volunteers. None of those libraries were won by volunteers back in 2010. So it's been a really quite rapid expansion in people staffing libraries for free, effectively, in, in the UK. That just did not exist, or it existed in, I think, Buckinghamshire had four libraries before 2010, which were run by volunteers, and that was it. Also, other organisations other than councils are now running libraries. 
So we have non-profit trusts in the UK, mainly ones run by leisure services, so people that run for swimming pools uh, and for football grounds and so on. Those organisations uh, are increasingly getting into the public library sector. So for largest of those, GLL run five library services, um, but also for there are quite a few leisure trusts in Scotland um, who run libraries as well. Then on top of that, you've got library trusts, which are trusts which are entirely library services, but they're non-profit and they're contracted out by the local council to run them. And we have got, I think, only three of those at the moment, um, Suffolk, York and Devon. But for Devon One is expanding and recently took over a neighbouring authorities library service as well in the competitive tender. So it's getting a bit predatory down in the southwest of England. It's got a lot more confusing, I think. There are, there are different ways of running library services now. Interestingly, none of them are run by a private company, none are run by a for profit company, which I know is different in the US. I think you have someone called LSS LSSI, possibly who won a few library services with you. But in the UK, they tried to get into the market, but for some reason were not successful. Um, their tenders were not successful for library services. So it's still entirely won by councils or for non-profit uh, or by volunteers. So COVID-19 is kind of like the, the, um, the gorilla in the room, as it were. And it's been a game changer. <laughs> I know, right? We were just talking about wildlife and off mic before, yeah. So it, it really has been a game changer with regard to, to planning for libraries. You know, long-range goals of the profession have definitely shifted. And much of yep. what is due, you know, most of, much of that is due to the new model of access, which has shifted from primarily the physical brick-and-mortar space to digital content, making that the primary versus, you know, the primary being coming into the building. What have you seen re regarding this trend in libraries in the UK, especially over the last five months or so? Yeah, the only way I can compare the um, impact of COVID on the library service to is an analogy to World War II um, and indeed to World War One, and for military developments in those two periods where you saw a massive increase in innovation and technological change in a short length of time. And that is pretty much what we've seen in libraries. I, I think we've had between what you'd normally expect five to ten years of progress in digital innovation happening in five months in the UK. And the reason for that is obvious. I mean, it, it was a phrase which I know, uh, which used to be said at conferences a lot, which was, quote, for library is not for building, unquote. Well, for four months there, that was literally true. Um, for, there were no buildings. Uh, for library was entirely digital, was entirely non-physical, which I would say I have been pleasantly amazed by how quickly took that on board in the UK. We're not known for being highly dynamic and innovative. At least I don't think we are. If we are, that's a mistake and stop thinking of us like that. Um, but for the last five months or so, we absolutely were. 
within, I mean, I, I was arguing for lockdown at the start of March. Within, I think, one day of our Prime Minister officially closing all libraries in the UK, the first video wine times were occurring. For, I don't think any libraries have done the video wine timing, we've had that behind in the UK um, before, and if they were, it was a very small scale. But, like, the day after they were being brought on, it was like a whole bunch of librarians who suddenly had the power to do things or the permission to do things which they never had before because their day job was getting in the way. Um, and, and now suddenly they could do these amazing things on social media, Zoom groups just for conversation, book reviews, computer training, all, all sorts of things going on. I mean... Library services actually have social media timetables now <laughs> where they say, right, on this day, we will have such and such in the morning, that in the afternoon, and, oh, yeah, we'll do something like that in the evening. Forget that six months ago. No no one did that. Um, and also it has meant for councils, for your organisations that run library services, sometimes with an iron fist, because they, they can literally say no to anything which you want to do, um, have been a lot more easygoing with library services. So in my own authority, we had uh, Twitter and Facebook, but we didn't have direct control over either. And within a week, we were given for username and password for the Facebook account. I mean, this is tremendous tremendous privilege for us we just didn't know didn't know what to do with all that independence frankly and then we were given an um we were allowed to have an instagram account we were able to put youtube video all, all, all sorts of amazement because libraries were the only good news story which councils had for a short while there there was crisis and there was catastrophe and library services were being nice and, and helping people out and being for friendly good news service, which councils really appreciated. In terms of where we're at now, it means that there's a whole bunch of library workers who are now familiar with social media, videoing, podcasting. There were some really good podcasts before um, lockdown, but then now there's now there's a lot more video editing, all these things, which which we didn't have before. And they're not going to go back into physical spaces, quite literally in some cases, because we're still in lockdown in some places. But we're not going to go back. What we're looking at now in is what I would have expected for library service to be in a position to do in 2030, quite quite easily. It's moved, it's moved back quickly. And I think nationally as well, there is an awareness but for anything which we do now in the future, if it is, even if we put on a physical event in the future, that will be seen as a waste if it is only a physical event. So if I've got an awful event in the future and it's just in the library, I've wasted it because that needs to be videoed, that needs to be broadcast we are being discriminatory to the people who cannot go to that awful event by by not showing it out there, particularly if it's a free event. And we're learning all sorts of fun ways to charge for things like 
And that, I think that's going to be for you, for new for be getting in the next few years. Um, so it, it's been a drastic change. I've been really pleased by how the profession has has dealt with it so far. The only thing I, I would say is it being for UK, there is, um, you talk about, I think, was it a bear in the room or an elephant in the room? Well, there's a definite elephant in the room now, which mm-hmm. is further cuts to our budgets because our government is not into large handouts to local government and the lockdown has cost a lot of money. We also have a lot of libraries that are only being used as a small percentage of as physically used as they were in January and February. So a third of the usage. Now, when councils, the people that set our budgets, think about that when they're faced with possibly huge bills because of having to pay for things during lockdown, social services and so on, that does not place libraries in a, in a good negotiating position. What does is all our digital stuff. So if we can if we can focus on digital and convince the council as as well as our fiscal side, which has definitely gone into abeyance for the last few months, the digital side is really important as well. Then, then I think we've got more of a chance. I'm a real convert to the digital. I'd have to say. Well, you know, it makes a lot of sense too. I mean, as as you're describing that, if we do a physical event in the future, you have to consider the people who don't come. And in the past, if you had, like, let's say, a musical performance, would that musical group say, "Well, we don't want it to be put online because that's our performance, and now people aren't going to come to see us in other places because they could just Google us and and watch it on YouTube." But I I think that climate is going to change because if anything and we're going to it's going to roll right into our next question is publicity for them so maybe it's not the whole song or maybe you streamed it over zoom but now you're only taking clips and putting yeah. clips on youtube there's there's so much that you can do with this in terms of stepping outside of that library box as it were where that the traditional thinking has is really just been thrown out the window in terms of how we approach the way we put ourselves out there, what we do with that programming. I mean, and so much I can state, and this is where the Sachem drinking game happens in my library, the Sachem public library. We've been doing a lot of the, the big joke is every time I say it, you have to drink. If Bob were here, he'd be laughing and saying, go ahead, say it again, say it again as you lift your glass. I love it. So the the idea of having an in-person performance again, we're doing that now with our YouTube channel with performances from home. And we're doing yeah. it now, now that we're yeah. back in our building, but we're not doing live performances. We actually made investments in camera equipment and lighting and, you know, all this great stuff so we can produce videos that are even better than they were before. So even if a librarian is just using their their mobile phone, we bought gimbals. They can put their mobile phone in a gimbal, which then sits in a tripod, which does this and does that. So it enhances the production quality. And then people yeah. who work in, in my department in the studio, again, another drinking game, they can facilitate that by booking one of the people that work in that department to then go and shoot the video. And if there's a desire by anybody in another department to learn the equipment, we can make that available to them as well. So I think so, it, it's... It, yeah, I mean, if I can jump in for that. Yeah, sure, go say, for it. 
but at the start of lockdown, what we were doing was very good considering the fact that we were unprepared for it. A lot of it will probably look amateur in for next few months. So what we need to do is to look as professional in our digital offer as, as what we were in our fiscal offer. So that's precisely, I think, mines are linking across the Atlantic because I'm, I'm wanting there to be free equipment so we can put on dead-on professional digital events, but combined with fiscal as well. So that when... So for in 10 years' time, the question is, what are you doing digitally with that fiscal event? Is the non-secretary, it doesn't mean anything, because you naturally think from the beginning, well, of course, any event is physical and digital. But there is there any difference between them? Why would, why, would we, why would we be locking out hundreds of people from seeing this performance event? Heck, even the nitter natter. You know, how come for people who are for the people who are at home who want to knit? How come just because they can't actually physically get to the library? How come we we are stopping from from being in that conversation? And I can I can see a whole pile happening in the future. Well, and two, I think the the mindset before was there was no way to quantitate that. So again, libraries love their statistics, and if you're streaming it on YouTube. Can you really see how many people attended? Can you really say to the board that there is something to be said about in making this investment because we have data to show that everybody's about the gate count, right? And now gate counts are down if your buildings are open. But what's that digital gate count? What's your gate count? How many views have you know has your video gotten? If you're doing a live performance outside in, in, in your garden or in your auditorium or in your community room, how do you quantitate that part of it to justify the cost? And I think that, yes, is still important, but not as important as it used to be in terms of Let's just the throw it out is, there now. Yeah, the, the cost is low to it. And I was talking to a few library services who are reporting 2,000 people watching their, their local wine time. I mean, that is ridiculous, frankly. I mean, a, a local wine time, if you get 50 people going to a local wine, that's really good physically. And certainly if they had 2,000 people watching a video, for physical wine time. <laughs> I mean, it makes so much more sense to actually video these things as well as having the physical side. And the, the people who are reporting for 2,000, 3,000 attendance at digital events, you bet they're going to use that with the with deciders, with the people that hold their budgets uh, as, as a reason for, for keeping them funded. Absolutely. Powerful argument. And think about ways of i don't want to say getting around regulations but you know usually i don't know how it is in the uk but in the us you really can't have like a beer event or a wine event or anything like that because you can't serve alcohol in the building but now if this is something that's a library sponsored event that's digital maybe you can kind of still do that and maybe even ahead of time say to this week in our beer tasting program we're going to be tasting sam adams bass ale Guinness and I don't know Budweiser and then they'll say in preparation for this you need to go and buy this 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 and this and then you can have like a book discussion but it's a beer discussion or a wine discussion or this something like that this is truly groundbreaking stuff I, I'm loving the fact <laughs> you put alcohol 
uh, into this discussion, and I think I'll, I'll need to take this back to quite a few chief librarians uh, and suggest we do a national online libraries beer testing. I think I think this could be for future. Thank you for that suggestion. Sure, and I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give a little bit of a shout out to my buddy Rob Thompson down in New South Wales because he does the beer tours with uh, with the Australian Library and Association. Information Association. He's the state manager down there, so he's talked about this kind of thing in the past. So that's sort of the idea. That's the spark right there. Came from Rob down in New South Wales. Um, Genius. So, this really rolls into our next question. The one thing that we've not really done a great job of in the past is publicity. Um, Libraries are great at holding on to those traditional means of publicizing events. You know, the newsletter that comes in the mail, and as of Five, six years ago, Facebook and Twitter, and I'm hesitating because even Twitter is like, oh, and then your Instagram, and then now it's Snapchat and TikTok and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think publicizing events, whether they're live in person, which we're not back to yet, or the digital ones, you know, programs need, need, we need to have that digital and now in marketing. And from your point of view, what are libraries missing when it comes to publicity and how and how does the PLN come into play with helping libraries with publicity? So, I mean, the big thing libraries are missing is a budget. We have no money for publicity whatsoever. Every... Um, every budget line is accounted for. And if there was a publicity line back 10 years ago, it has gone now. So there is no money. So we need to be imaginative of how we do it. And before digital, it, that would have basically been impossible then because everything would have cost printing uh, and so on. Uh, digital gives us at least a chance that we didn't have before. Another thing I would say which we're missing at the moment is a national presence. And, and this is uh, an ongoing sore point in British libraries. Um, there's 202 different library services in the UK, and there's no national website. So you don't have an American Library Association <laughs> equivalent or, or Australian yeah. Library and Information so, Association? I mean, it's a nonsense to me. I mean, you can have... For uh, particular things that should go straight away into a national website, a library catalogue is a no-brainer. It should be, it, it should be in there. But uh, an event search database should be easy enough. All sorts of stuff should be on there. And that was one of the one of the glaring things which we were missing at the start of lockdown, is for because I know because people are coming to my website and searching for things because. My website is top in the Google search results for for sorts of public libraries terms, and I can see what search what search terms are being used. So there was a tremendous gap in what the national publicity side. Now they are working on this. The downside is um, people have been working on it for the last decade, so longer than longer than my website. People have been working for absolutely no result. So so on. Um, so far, but we're hoping in 2011 there will be a something which will probably not be called. I hope it's not called a single digital presence because that's a that's a terrible term. But that's what it's called at the moment. So we need a national website. 
Um, I think in terms of my website, what I've been doing so far isn't publicizing events. It's not really for people who are interested in public events and in services. It is more for industry insiders, librarians, uh, and for those with a strong interest, like library campaigners who are unhappy with their local library being shut down. So the website's been mainly for that. But interestingly, this year, the most popular web page I've done ever with thousands of A was one which listed each library service in the UK and what libraries were open uh, in each library service and, and or when they were opening and whether it was click and collect or whether it was browsing was allowed and so on because no one else was doing it. There wasn't a national website for that sort of thing. So that's been interesting. I think that shows that there is, there would be a strong appetite for a national website if it got properly done. The, the difficulty is that we do library services. Well, that's 222 cats in the bag, isn't it, really? They've, uh, they've, all, they've all got their own um, wishes, intents, specifications, formats, all of that. And without a strong central push, some of them are not going to agree to it. Or they're all going to vaguely agree, and actually it, it will result in the lowest common denominator, not very good website at the end of it. And i say it for a moment looking at it, that's the most likely music from the digital presence. What public libraries do is actually push good. It's not hard for social, for social media is set up, and I go on YouTube all the time um, for different things, and for uh, YouTube providers out there for, have got superb content with very little budget. If we provide quality product with all our newfound knowledge and better knowledge of what's going on digitally, which we found over lockdown and hopefully forevermore, then we actually stand a chance because libraries have got a trusted brand. People like the word libraries. They think they know libraries because they have a physical building down their site as well. And we're local. So we can provide local events and good content for people, which these algorithms and so on will, will hopefully search for. Um, so we have a possibilities that we did not have with zero budget back when I started. Well, again, this is another great transition into our next question, um, because in your 10 years, aside from publicity for libraries what have you noticed is the biggest trend moving the profession forward covid notwithstanding of course i would say now if you asked me that question a few years ago i would say fear because <laughs> <laughs> fear is a great motivator because right library serves it's a great motivator and we had two great motivators when it came to fear one was ebooks which scared many librarians and the second was something you've done you have got a bit in the USA, but I don't think as much as here, which was massive budget cuts. So we had, on average, the, the percentage is is hard, but in real terms, that is, if you take inflation into account, a 20 to 40% cut in budget for each library service in, in the UK, which is huge. So it meant that library services were largely reactionary. They were reactive, rather. We actually might be a right word, actually, thinking about it. So they were reactive in what they were doing, and they just gone through one restructure and one round of cuts, and another one hit 
However, now, although COVID might have changed things, might have reset things slightly, I would say it's more of hope. We've not had major budget cuts nationally for two or three years. Um, but I'm saying for, for the last few years, it's moved more into uh, a trend of hope because the budget cuts have stopped, hopefully, or at least they've certainly died down over the last couple of years. And, and also, the threat that we perceived in the digital has turned out not to be such a big threat. Ebooks are not going to wipe out printed physical reading, it turns out. No one knew that 10 years ago. It's an interesting one because each library service has got different trends and different motivators and so on. But I would say generally library services are going for a mixture of keeping the fiscal open, but at the same time really pushing for digital offer while hoping that the council doesn't come along and reduce their budget by a reasonable percentage. So where do we go from here? From your unique perspective at PLN and seeing the trends and adaptations in the UK, where are we headed? Get out your crystal ball. Tell us. <laughs> well, it, it's darker. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> what for dogs now? Um, so it's it's interesting. It is not in as pessimistic. Uh, a place as we were certainly in the UK 10 years ago. Um, we have grounds for optimism uh, in the way that libraries have adapted. It would depend on how we, A, move forward, but B, how we communicate, and I don't want to say communicate our vision because that will make me sound like a chief executive officer or someone depends on how we tell for decision makers and the public where we're going. We have got better at that uh, in the last few years. We've got better at digital. We've got better at knowing who we are, I think. Um, there were a lot of librarians a few years ago who were having an existential crisis about, hang on, I'm here for the books and all the books are disappearing. Well, that's not how things, how things have turned out. So, we're gonna be we're gonna be okay. We might be different. We might be a different size than we are now. Hopefully bigger, but you know. But we will be better than than we are now for for those that wish to use us. And hopefully we will have better tools to convince those that don't use us uh, of what we have to offer. I agree one hundred percent. And we can only, I mean, they say leaner and meaner. You know, I don't know about the leaner and meaner part, but we have been thrown in a catapult and launched into the future. Yeah. And it's a matter of, there is no staff member now that's the, oh, well, you know, they're kind of old school. There's no such thing as that anymore. You either move forward with us or, you know, you're part of the problem. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, you know, because we're always going to need readers advisory. We're always going to need the, the people that that know the, the book stuff, because that's really important to what we do. But it, it's a matter of taking those people and reimagining what they do and how they do it. And they may not even all they need to do is make the video. If somebody else shoots the video, all they or they need to just type something up and then it goes on a blog or, you know, my my main job at the moment is buying children's books. Now, that is 
I do all sorts of stuff as well. And for children's books, I buy entirely online. I publicize via social media. I make videos for them. I've informed staff of new search tools in order so that the public can be better informed of what books they've got. No matter what your role in libraries, um, change and digital improvement is going to be part of your job. Um, and if it isn't, then look up and, and start doing it because you will make the service better for the public. Absolutely. This has been a real great discussion. This has been really amazing. Um, <laughs> it's always great to see what things are, how things are happening in another part of the world. To, and like I said earlier, we're still doing the same thing no matter where we are in the world. And it's really yeah. amazing to see. And I know I follow you on Twitter. I love reading the stuff you put out there. I jump on every once in a while just to see if I can get inspiration, get a new idea, bring it, bringing it here to, to what we're doing here on Long Island. And I really do appreciate all the work that you do because it really is it's it's Herculean. It looks like it's it's a lot of work. So kudos to it's you. It's a lot and, less now. It used to be when I started, it was two or three hours a night, five days a week, which was challenging mm-hmm. with a daytime job. Uh, now it's about four or five hours on a Saturday and perhaps half an hour, an hour every day, which is manageable. And it's it's a service which I would not keep on with if people didn't tell me all the time it was useful. Uh, and people do tell me all the time. People do appreciate it. And that gives, that gives me tremendous self-satisfaction and so, on, and so on to do that. So I do get an awful lot back from the work which I put in on the site. And that's important. It's really important. It's validation, which is what everybody needs, right? Okay, so we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be asking our top 10 library questions, what we call the 032 list, which is we are told the Dewey number for top 10 lists. It's up for debate, but it's okay. We're going to stick with that. And this is a little bit of a challenge because Ian doesn't necessarily, in his role at the PLN, isn't necessarily direct access, but he works in a library. And yeah. we're, gonna, we're just going to give this a shot. So we always give uh, credit and thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for giving us the idea for naming the list what it is. Uh, we always say thank you to Melanie over at Longwood. And we'll be back in just a moment. So now... Okay, we are back with Ian Anstis, who will be our next position. Close. 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 Anstis. It depends on my terrible New York accent. Anstis. Anstis, who will be the next participant in our 032 list. So the questions of the list are inspired by the publication Literary Hub. It's a source for library news. It has stories and interviews related to library land. You you can see their work by visiting lithub.com. They do a great job educating and informing library professionals on great topics from all over the world. So, are you ready? Yes. Okay. First question. What did you want to be when you were a child? wanted to be... Let's have a think. What did I want to be as a child? I wanted to be employed. I, I, <laughs> I had no imagination as a child whatsoever. I, I just thought I'd walk into a, a quiet job somewhere and hopefully be paid. That was... That was my ambition as a child. Not the most fascinating child you've ever talked to, frankly. Very pragmatic. Wow. <laughs> so what was your first memory of the library and who brought you to the library for the first time? So I've already, already mentioned the school library service, but uh, I remember um, I lived in Wiltshire at a time by a place called Salisbury. 
Um, and my parents used to drive for 10 or so miles to to Salisbury, go, go and do some shopping, but there was a, a Salisbury library. Um, and my first memory of that place was they had what we'd call a kinder box, a, a box for picture books, and it had Asterix books in it. And I'd never come across Asterix books before. And it was it was a wonderful experience for a young boy to see a bunch of French people uh, beating the heck out of Romans. Um, it was, uh, do you not know the Asterix books? No, what are they? It doesn't look like you know the Asterix books. Look, Google it, A-S-T-E-R-I-X, Asterix books. There's a kind of like graphic novels back in the day, and it's about ancient girls who had secret potion, magic potion rather, which made them superhumanly strong, uh, and they could beat up the ancient Romans. And it was, and it Went on like this for about 30 or 40 books. I think they're still publishing them. They're all tremendously hilarious. And another young boy, seeing people beating up other people in a book was all I could wish for. Uh, and I could <laughs> get, these, get these books out for free at the local library. And there were different ones each time I went in. It was fantastic. So we're going to look, we're going to look up Asterix books now. That's something new. Look at that. We always learn something new on this podcast. I'm shocked you don't know of these things. <laughs> so when did you decide to work in, a, in the library field, and was it your first career choice? I know we kind of talked, touched on this earlier. And what yeah, was your first career path? This. I've always, always liked libraries, but I mean, being, being motivated mainly by money, as I said, um, back when I was younger, I went into a bank first, but absolutely hated it because, I mean, for the reason I hated it was that we were making money from people. Um, and that really annoyed me. Uh, that went against customer my feelings of customer service, and I, I realise it's for bedrock of capitalism and so on. But to but to actually take money from people for profits just seemed I don't know didn't sit well with me. Now I'm, I'm aware that makes me sound like a communist, but um, it was <laughs> it, for some reason it just wasn't in my nature. So. I, uh, uh, and frankly, I wasn't very good at the job as well, which was a bit of an indicator. So I sat down, as I said, and worked out what I would enjoy doing. And public librarian came came out, or librarian at that time. I didn't know I wanted to be in public libraries. Librarian came out top in the list, so I went to work as a graduate trainee at Bath University uh, and then did a master's at Sheffield University. And for the first job I got was one in Cheshire, which is where I am now, um, because I have no ambition. And I'm a librarian in in Cheshire, and I basically moved through the world, done all sorts of things. And uh, I thought my wife would disagree because she wants more money from me, have things turn around. Boy, if you think you have no initiative, yet you're running all this. Wow, I hate to see what you think somebody with initiative has. <laughs> I fell into it really. I mean, it was it was uh, it was it was a blog. It was successful. Um, it expanded incrementally. It's not like I had a grand strategic plan in 2010 to be a national news website. I just wanted to find out what was going on. But what what I did do is I didn't say no, and I think that is I think that's quite an important thing when 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 you see opportunities and when you see a need, 
um, saying yes to that, I think, is normally the correct answer. Yeah, yes is a good thing. Culture of yes, I love it. So, <laughs> who is your favorite fictional librarian? Ooh, now there's so many yeah. fictional librarians. And so many of them are nasty people as well. J.K. Rowling's got a lot of stick at the moment, but, but she should get particular stick for the librarian at Hogwarts University, who, who frankly should have been failed from her doing her master's degree in magical librarianship back in the day for being so nasty. So that's my least favourite one. My most favourite one absolutely has to be the Orang Yutang from Terry Pratchett Discworld books. Tell me you know the Terry Pratchett Dis- Discworld books. No. Oh, my goodness me. I mean, okay. I mean I'm sure my colleagues would. I'm, I just don't. <laughs> so... So this is a librarian at a magical university. It's a university for wizards. Um, um, some, it was a magic spell went wrong, and it turned a librarian into an Orang Yutang, uh, which he initially found, you know, a bit unsettling. But when he, when he discovered that he had really long arm reach, he could swing around the shelves far quickly than walk, and all he really needed in life was bananas and a monthly trip to the local zoo. He got a lot. He got a lot happier, and that for for librarian in his Discord books, absolutely fantastic. Even for most powerful characters in the Discord universe, fear for librarian because he he will he will break necks if necessary. And I'm not saying. That's something I aspire to as a librarian myself. It is definitely something I admire in him. Wow. This, that, that's a first <laughs> for us. Wow. Breaking next. Really? For librarian and Discord books? I, I, I'm glad I'm bringing Coucher to you. You are. Um, you are. I'm just uh, this lonely surf sitting here on Long Island. Okay. So what would you be doing if you were not working in the li- library profession? You wouldn't be working in a bank. I'm absolutely hoping it would involve coffee shops. Um, <laughs> um, anything which involves cappuccinos, sitting down in comfortable chairs, uh, and appreciating biscuits, uh, I can go with. So any profession which which involves those. I realize it's a limited career choice, but um, anything which involves cappuccino and biscuits. Yeah, I'd go with that. <laughs> So what is your favorite section of the library? So originally this was like fiction, nonfiction, you know, mysteries, but now with makerspaces and all the different cool things that libraries do, you know, it could be anything. So makerspaces is a curious one because they, in the UK, it's been a bit of a rocky start for them. They have been highly successful in some places, but they have been a bit of, they've suffered from, oh, look, shiny in, in other places where, where people have gone, oh, look, well, that library service has got one, so I must have one. I don't know what to do with it, but I'm going to install it in the room uh, and, and hope someone does. So, so sometimes makerspaces haven't been entirely successful in the UK. Um, my favourite section is still, look, it's even for, you know, I'm a 21st century librarian in lots of ways, those those printed bookshelves call to me. 
and particularly for science fiction section calls to me in a very real physical and fiscal way. Um, but also, I would say, uh, as, as a nod to 2020, I would say for, for library book section on the e-books on the iPad also counts. So those two parts of the library, the digital bookshelf and the fiscal one, both, both appeal to me because they're both offering exactly the same thing. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? Now, bearing in mind my conversation to you earlier about what I'd want to do in my job choice, I mean, I'm sure it wouldn't surprise you to say that really nice comfy chairs and a cappuccino machine uh, would be would be up there. Because look, once you've got, if you've got infinite space and infinite money, you've got all the book stock, you've got all the computers, you've got your Wi-Fi and you've got all of that, but you need somewhere comfortable to sit down with a cappuccino, ideally with hazelnut syrup in it, and survey for survey for wonders, and so that's what I'd want is I want a real top class, but still cheap coffee shop in there for for me to uh, for me to enjoy for wonders of library land. What do you love about your library? <laughs> this is where you get to wax poetic. Um, I absolutely love when I get an angry customer and. They walk away at the end of the conversation smiling. That is, I think to myself, I have earned my monthly, my weekly, my yearly pay. And and that is that's one of the joys of a job, certainly if you're frontline in libraries, which I was until a few years ago, is the sheer universal spectrum of the people you get coming in who are after anything and everything. They might have had a bad day, they might have had a good day, they might not speak English. They might, might not be able to see or hear, but they are fair with a problem and you, you, you deal with them and you answer that problem. And if they walk away smiling, that is absolutely everything else not important, frankly, is when you have, um, when you've been instrumental in making the customer satisfied. That is, that is absolute job satisfaction for me. So this is a good transition to our next question. What's the weirdest, not worst, but weirdest thing that's either happened to you in your career working in a library or at PLN? I'll give you the option to pick which one. In the library, the thing that bears out to me is is at 10 o'clock at night, for the movement sensor went off. And back in those days, we didn't have a security guard or security service. So I had to traipse to the library to, to see why the security sensor had gone off, which... Looking back now, wasn't the most sensible thing to have done, but when, but nevertheless, I did it because uh, I was young and foolish in those days. Still am, uh, well, foolish anyway. And <laughs> when, after about half an hour of searching for library and noticing strangely ground up stuff on the floor, I found it was oh, what was it now? It was a hamster. We had a hamster. Uh, escaped. I do not know why. Um, where I'm working is not known for its wild hamster population, but it was, uh, there was nonetheless a hamster in the building, and it took me 20 minutes to trap said hamster. Don't worry, it was humane. Um, the hamster had a cookie out of it. The hamster was happy, and uh, bless it, the thing, the thing was absolutely starving. 
because it had its its little cheeks were full of sawdust. It used that nothing to eat. So listeners would be happy to know that we named the hamster Cookie in the end due to its uh, ideal eating habits, uh, and it led a happy hamster life uh, in a senior library assistant's home afterwards. But but traipsing around the library and discovering a wild hamster in residence definitely uh, got got my interest. I mean, for for time when we had the arson attack, that was quite fun as well. Um, but but it's a hamster that was the main one. <laughs> Did you say an arson attack? Yeah, yeah, we had an arson attack. Yeah. Wow. But but, but look, libraries deal with everyone. Uh, And so we have to get used to dealing with everyone. And some of those people have got all sorts of problems. And one of those problems is going to be a desire to put fire lighters in an inflammable place in the building during open hours and setting the light and seeing what happens. Um, So the fact I had to go out of a bucket of water (laughs) (laughs) and get rid of of the flames, because it... I could see it. I mean, for the poor person that did it, it was clearly an absolute amateur when it came to arson attacks. That that was memorable as well. But I was a small-town librarian for years. I mean, I could tell you stories that would have your hair on end. I mean, that's, that's what happens when you work in a small-town library. You deal with, with everyone, and you see all sorts of human behaviour, some of which you wish you could unsee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Okay, so our final question. What are people without library cards missing out on? Libraries. Um, for missing out on libraries, quite clearly. Um, and No, no. Um, so in this country, not sure, not sure how it works in America, but they're missing out on getting value for their taxes because they, they're, paying us, they're paying us some money, so come into a library. But, but then, you know... It depends on the person. Sometimes people have got um, lots of money and no time, in which case the library service hasn't got anything to offer them because they can afford everything. So it depends on the person, really. Some of the people, unfortunately some of those people are decision makers, your president for one, um, has no use for public libraries because they've never needed one. They've they've been afforded everything forever. So it depends on the person. We are not all things to all people. It depends on what for after for time. But what we need to provide uh, for basics, we need to provide free access to imagination in the term of books and, and other resources and information in terms of books and other sources in, in a neutral way. Um, which is unbiased, but also means that you don't need to have lots of money, which is important, um, for people in time of need. And that and that need can be desperate or it can just be leisure. But that's what that's what people are missing out on if they've not if they've not discovered libraries. Well said. Well said indeed. So give us some plugs. Give us uh, where we where can we find the PLN and give us your Twitter and all that fun stuff so people can check you out, especially here in the States, because maybe you'll get some some heat from, from so this side of the pond. www.publiclibrariesnews.com uh, is for website. 
Um, I'm just checking on what my Twitter handle is because I started it off back about 12 years ago and frankly I had no idea what I was doing. So the, uh, the Twitter handle is at public lib lib news. That's not too bad, is it? No. Public lib news. And name is Ian Anstice, so you can A N S T I C E. So you can Google me if you want, if you wish as well. Very, very cool. Well, <laughs> Ian, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. And you, you miss, you're not missing too much of the football, are you? I have no interest in, in what you Americans call football. I wasn't talking about that. Um, I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> I wasn't going to use the American word. I'm speaking with a Brit. Yeah, I know you roll your eyes when we use the S word. I get it. Oh, that's so cute. Uh, no, you have a cute uh, little word for it. There's not much soccer going on at the moment in this country. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not really into sport anyway, um, So it's which is just as well considering what I do for a hobby. Um, so wa- walking a dog's uh, is is basically the interest. And at the moment, I'd have to say destroying a fair amount of digital tanks and wilder tanks as well uh, is a tremendous stress reliever. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. Cheers. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob, and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.